that to Mercy House University's podcast and our series, How God Explains Everything. Absolutely everything. That's not part of the title, but I just like saying it. <laughs> and so today we've, uh, we've looked at a couple arguments for God's existence so far. We looked at what are a couple versions of cosmological arguments, arguments that look at just the existence of things in total, the whole cosmos, and try and infer from there being things that there must be uh, a God, or, well, at least that there must be a cause of those things, and then we're trying to look at how you could go from that to there being God. Uh, today we're going to start looking at a different style of argument. Uh, so this is going to be one of what's generally called, or a version of what's generally called a teleological argument, but the specific version that we're looking at today is called the fine-tuning argument. So Justin's going to lead us through that. So what is, what is, what is? What is? <laughs> uh, okay. What is fine-tuning? What is cosmic fine-tuning? Right. What is cosmic fine-tuning? So... Over the last um, approximately a century, uh, there is a branch of science that has emerged and then kind of matured uh, called cosmology. And this branch of science is the study of the, like, the universe as a whole. So people doing cosmology are interested in like, where did the universe come from? What's going to happen to it in the future? And, you know, general properties of the universe, like how big is it? Is it expanding? How fast is it expanding? Things like that. Well, one of the things that cosmologists have discovered over the last century or so is that a whole lot of features of the universe seem to be very precisely fine-tuned so that life can exist in the universe. Um, so... Let me uh, begin with an illustration, a kind of a metaphor for this, which is due to uh, the philosopher of science, Robin Collins. Suppose that you travel to Mars, and on Mars you find this biome with life inside it, and uh, around the outside of the biome there are a whole bunch of dials, where each dial controls some kind of condition inside the biome. So, for example, uh, one dial might control the temperature inside the biome, another one might control the uh, level of oxygen, another one controls the lighting, and so forth. And suppose you also notice that on a lot of these dials, um, there are very, very few possible settings for the dial that would make the, the conditions inside the biome be life-permitting. Most of the settings of, the, of those dials are, are such that if the dial were set that way, then life wouldn't be able to exist inside the biome. But you also notice that, as a matter of fact, all of the dials are set just right so that the biome has life-friendly conditions inside. Well, what a fine-tuning is, is basically the discovery that our universe is kind of like that biome. Uh, to use, we can use the dials as like sort of a metaphor um, in this way. Basically, cosmologists have discovered that our universe has a bunch of these dials on it. And these dials have to all be set in just the right way so that life is possible in the universe. And as a matter of fact, they are set in just the right way so that life is possible in the universe. 
So here's a, a specific example, um, moving away from the, the metaphor of like what exactly these dials represent. Um, so one example of this is the strength of gravity. Gravity is a familiar force in the world, and it pulls on things with a certain degree of strength given you know, any certain amount of mass. But um, scientists are able to calculate what the world would be like if gravity had a different amount of strength, if it were a stronger force than it is, or if it were a weaker force than it is. And it turns out that if you make it uh, much stronger than it actually is, you start getting problems uh, for life. Now, if you make it too strong, um, you couldn't really have any interesting things in the universe like stars and planets and galaxies and organisms because gravity would just crush everything. Similarly, if you go the other direction and you make gravity uh, weaker, it doesn't take too much weakening before we start getting problems for life. If you weaken it enough, uh, gravity won't be able to hold anything together. And so again, you won't have these interesting structures like the ones that we have, things like galaxies and stars and uh, ultimately organisms. So um, gravity has to be uh, set, like it, it has to fall into this like Goldilocks zone is the way sometimes people talk about it. It can't be too strong, can't be too weak, it's gotta be just right, or you can't have life or really much of anything interesting in the universe at all. Now, um, to what extent does gravity have to be, you know, very carefully fine-tuned like this? Well, here's the number that I usually see cited. Um, the claim is usually that the strength of gravity is fine-tuned to one part in 10 to the 60th power. So Is, is, is that a lot? That's, that's quite a, that's a, yeah, that's a lot. I'm not much of a mathematician, but that sounds like a lot. <laughs> that's a lot. So, so return to the dial metaphor. It's sort of like saying there's a dial on our universe that, that represents the strength of gravity. And that dial has 10 to the 60th possible settings that you could set it on. And just one of them is life-friendly. If it's got to be on just that one setting or you cannot have uh, life or in the universe. Okay, so that would be one example of a fine-tuned parameter in the universe. According to the astronomer Luke Barnes, who has done a lot of uh, work on fine-tuning, uh, there are about 10 to 12 of uh, these. Uh, this, this was in an interview he did. He, uh, somebody asked him, you know, how many fine-tuned parameters are there? Um, and there, he says there are about 10 to 12 like parameters of the universe that are like this in that they are very, very precisely fine-tuned. They fall in this extremely narrow, life-permitting range. Okay, so that's what fine-tuning is. So when you talk about that uh, biome example, and if I were to imagine that there were 10 to 12 uh, dials on the biome, all of which were just pointed to the right direction and couldn't uh, to be life for the biome to be life permitting, and you couldn't move the dials off of that, or else it wouldn't be. If I came across that biome, I would uh, infer that well, someone must have put these dials in this direction on purpose. There must have been s somebody outside the biome who came along and 
and set, set everything the right way. Is that kind of what the fine-tuning argument Exactly, is? yeah. So it's sort of an argument that tries to say, like, look, if the universe is this way, that sure makes it seem like, you know, somebody made it that way on purpose. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the rough idea. So here's, you, here's a... Sorry. Well, presumably you can multiply the odds for every one of those yeah, individual factors. If they're if the parameters are independent, then you multiply the probabilities, and then yeah. yeah, and they are, uh, pr- from what I can tell, as far as I understand, they are I think largely independent of each other. Um, yeah. So here, let me give like a simple version of the fine tuning argument. Then um, here's a simple version. Premise one: the universe is fine tuned for life. Premise two. If the universe is fine-tuned for life, then it was designed that way by God. Conclusion, it was designed that way by God. Okay, so very simple argument. Um, let me say something briefly about like why you might think that the two premises in that argument are true. So the first, argu- the first premise, again, was just, the, just claimed that the universe is fine-tuned for life. Why I think that's true? Well, basically because the scientists say so. So if you trust the scientists, uh, then you've got a really good reason to think that the universe is fine-tuned for life because that's what they say. This is pretty uncontroversial. There have been a couple of people who have tried to challenge this, uh, this claim that the universe has these parameters that are just set in this very, that are, they fall within this very narrow life-permitting range. Um, but, uh, that seems to be kind of a fringe view. Pretty much, uh, most scientists seem to agree, uh, the vast majority of them, and this is, it's, it, regardless of whether they believe in God or not, agree that the universe is fine-tuned. Where, what that means is, not necessarily that anybody fine-tuned it, that's, that's a later step in the argument, but just that, um, it has these parameters that have to fit within these very narrow ranges if life's going to be possible, and they are, in fact, in those ranges. Okay, so why I think the first premise is true? Uh, Science. (laughs) Science. (laughs) Most of the controversy about this argument is not about the first premise. It's about the second premise. So the second premise, as I formulated the argument, says that if the universe is fine-tuned for life, then it was designed that way by God. Here's a reason you might think that that premise is true. You might think, and many people do think, that God is the best available explanation of why the universe is fine-tuned for life. And we can kind of see the intuition behind that by returning, um, as Patrick was suggesting, to the biome case. So uh, Patrick pointed out, like, look, if you're if you find this biome and you notice like all these dials around it that are all like set in just the right way so that life can exist in the biome, you're probably going to think somebody did that on purpose. Somebody came along and wanted to make sure that the conditions in the biome were suitable for life and they set the dials that way on purpose. You're probably not going to think that somebody came along and just randomly gave the dials a spin and they just coincidentally all landed on the life-permitting settings. You'll think that the somebody did this on purpose explanation is much better and much more likely than the it just happened by chance explanation. Well, similarly, the thought is with the fine-tuning of the universe, it seems like if all those metaphorical dials on our universe are set just right for life, other things being equal, it seems like uh, saying that God, you know, put them that way, 
deliberately set them that way because God wanted there to be life in the universe seems like a way better explanation, way more likely than than saying, oh, well, it's just by chance that the, the all those, you know, dials were set in the right settings. So that's kind of the basic thought behind the second uh, premise of that argument. And the conclusion follows from those two premises by an ordinary um, uh, deductive inference form. So if both of those premises are true, then it follows that God designed the universe, which of course implies that God exists. So what are some uh, objections people made to this argument <clears throat> uh, or reasons people would think that this is not the case? Yeah, good. So here's what I think is the main objection to this argument, the, probably the most popular one. There are lots of objections, and, and they're all interesting to think about, but this is, I think, the biggest one. So it's an objection to premise two, the premise that says if the universe was designed the way, or if, sorry, if the universe is fine-tuned, then it was designed that way by God. Um, because like I said, that's pretty much where all the controversy is. And the objection basically just says, no, actually, there is another explanation of the fine-tuning in the universe that's at least as good as, and maybe better than, the explanation that involves God. We don't just have to choose between God and chance. There's another alternative. And that alternative is what's called a multiverse. So a multiverse just means many, or at least more than one, universe. Uh, it's the idea that our universe maybe isn't the only universe that there is, that there are other universes out there. And there are lots of different versions of this idea, but uh, some of them claim that there are actually infinitely many universes out there. Um, and here's how this is supposed to help explain the fine-tuning of our universe. It's kind of a two-step explanation. So first, the thought is, like, suppose that there's one of these giant multiverses. Let's say there's infinitely many universes. Well, it might also be the case that um, the various, like, features of those universe, universes vary from one universe to the next in the multiverse. So that, you know, one of them has gravity set at this degree of strength, and another one has gravity at a different degree of strength, and so on for other fine-tuned parameters of the universe. Well, if that's the case, then it seems like given infinitely many universes that are all kind of varying in, in these respects, you're bound to get some that are fine-tuned, that have, have all of their settings in the life-permitting range. And so um, by positing the multiverse, we can get an explanation of why there is at least one, and probably more than one, fine-tuned universe. That's the first step in the multiverse explanation of fine-tuning. There's a second step, though, because if you've got, like, infinitely many universes and the fine-tuned ones are, like, comparatively rare, then there's another question you might ask, which is, like, well, why do we find ourselves in one of the fine-tuned ones and not one of the, you know, all the plenty of non-fine-tuned ones that are out there? Um, just because there are fine-tuned ones, you know, they're still going to be relatively rare in, in some in some sense, it gets complicated when you bring in infinity, but we're going to ignore those complications for the time being. Um, and here, the explanation that is brought in to kind of finish the story is, it's a, um, is uh, what's called the anthropic principle. The anthropic principle just says that um, since we are observers, 
we are like living things that can observe uh, a universe, we can only find ourselves in a universe where observers are possible. You couldn't have observers in a universe where the conditions are not observer-friendly, that they don't permit the existence of that sort of a thing. And so even if there are you know, infinitely many universes out there that are not fine-tuned, as long as there are also some fine-tuned universes, we're, of course, going to find ourselves in one of those. We couldn't find ourselves observing a different one. So we have this explanation here, this sort of two-step multiverse explanation of why we find ourselves in this fine-tuned universe. First, you get the, the, all these, you know, the plenitude of universes, which, is a, which explains why there are some fine-tuned universes uh, somewhere or other. And then you bring in the anthropic principle to explain why we're observing one of the fine-tuned ones rather than a non-fine-tuned one. Okay, so that's the story. That's how it's supposed to go. So this multiverse hypothesis could provide another explanation for fine-tuning, perhaps, but are there any reasons uh, against it? Are there any reasons to think it's false? Yeah, I think there are actually some really good reasons to think that this is... Not a good explanation of the fine-tuning of the universe. Sometimes people have attacked the first step of the explanation and tried to say that there are good reasons to think that there are, is not a multiverse, mm -hmm. and that maybe this is the only universe, or at least that if there aren't you know enough universes of the right sort to explain fine-tuning. Um, I think some of the best objections, though, actually target the second step of the explanation, where... Um, the move is to say, well, because we can only exist in a universe where observers are possible, of course we'll be observing a fine-tuned universe. Um, so let me see if I can explain... Uh, I, I want to highlight two problems with that step of the explanation. The first problem is this. Um, so it turns out there actually are some non-fine-tuned universes in which observers are statistically likely to appear at certain points. In particular, universes which are like chaotic in a certain way, very high entropy, where the at least the entropy of the universe is not fine-tuned in the way ours is, um, are apparently, according to uh, certain scientists, um, these universes are of a sort where, with a certain degree of probability, every once in a while, in the midst of all the chaos, there will be a random fluctuation of order that appears, and maybe for just a short time, and then vanishes again. And that random fluctuation of order can take the form of, like, uh, spontaneously, like, a, a, a solar system, just spontaneously, like, and temporarily popping into existence among this high-entropy chaos. Or even less, it could be just a brain that just temporarily pops into existence and, and finds itself in this chaotic universe. And this is a non-fine-tuned universe, or a universe where at least some of uh, the relevant uh, parameters that need to be fine-tuned um, are not. Um, and so, and moreover, it turns out, um, I believe like Roger Penrose uh, at Cambridge is one of the scientists who's done some of these calculations. It turns out that like these little fluctuation observers, as they're sometimes called, um, or Boltzmann brains is another term for them, are actually way more probable than just getting a, a giant low-entropy universe like ours where you have millions and millions of miles of, 
of like matter organized into stuff like galaxies and stars and ultimately like habitat where life can emerge and things like that. And so it turns out if that's right, then just given that we're observers, what kind of universe should we be expected to be observing in a, a plenitudinous multiverse? Well, it turns out we should, we should actually expect, be way more likely to find ourselves in one of these chaotic universes, to, to find that we're just fluctuation observers in the midst of all this chaos, rather than being in a, a nice, pristine, uh, you know, fully fine-tuned universe like ours. So you're saying, I should have been a Boltzmann brain. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if this multiverse proposal is true, so it would seem. And so Luke Barnes likes to emphasize, this seems like a failed prediction of the multiverse hypothesis or at least relevant versions of that hypothesis. It seems like if that were true, it's more, more way more likely that we'd be observing, um, that we'd be like uh, fluctuation observers in a chaotic world than that we would find ourselves in a world like ours. Once you've posited, well, if, if the multiverse isn't just like two or three, but like an infinite number, uh -huh. does probability really make any difference? Yeah, so... There's uh, some discussion about that, actually. There's a lot of discussion about that. Um, and I'm not going to try to really answer that question here, but what I'll say is this. It seems like there's kind of a dilemma here for anyone who's trying to get out of the fine-tuning argument because um, you can either say probability is still, still works and then you have to deal with this kind of objection, like, well, then we would more likely be mm. in a Boltzmann brain universe than a... Uh, than a universe like ours. Or you can say, well, probability doesn't work, but then that seems problematic too, because now, now you're having to say lots of things that really, really seem implausible. Like if somebody, an example Bill Craig likes to use, you know, let's say you get somebody, that, somebody wins a card game with um, like a really improbable hand of cards and you think this person's gotta be cheating or something like that, right? All of a sudden, if you're wanting to say, well, we're in a sort of multiverse which makes probabilistic reasoning, uh, you know, nonsense or whatever, then you can't, you can't make inferences like that. You mm -hmm. can't say, like, oh, it's improbable that they just happened to get that hand of cards without cheating. And that seems like a really bad consequence. Well, would there still be the same, like, you couldn't have probability in our universe and not across the multiverse? Well, so in you, sense. It, it would still, <clears throat> you'd still have the same problem because the idea would be like, well... What's the probability of you being in a universe where that person gets that hand of cards? Mm. If you think that, like, as soon as you have infinitely many diverse multiverses, then we can't make, you know, you've got, well, there are infinitely many universes where they get that hand, and also infinitely mm. many where they don't, right? So either there's got to be a way to make probability work, even if there's an infinite multiverse, or it seems like the fact that probability is a thing <laughs> is a really good reason to say there is no infinite multiverse. Mm -hmm. So it's like a dilemma for yeah. anyone who's trying to get out of the fine-tuning argument. So there was the Boltzmann brain kind of worlds presented one problem for the anthropic principle, or the principle that yeah. that objection about what we should expect to uh, observe as uh, as observing entities. Is there any other reason to think the anthropic principle is false? Yeah. Uh, oh, sorry. So. 
we, we don't want to say that the anthropic principle is false. Right. We're just saying it doesn't... That, uh, it doesn't apply as an objection to the... Yeah. It doesn't help explain why, if there's a multiverse, we're observing the universe that we are rather than a different kind of universe. Great. So yeah. is there any other objection to that yes. uh, step in the uh, counter-argument? Yes. So here's another kind of objection like that. So... Um, some people have thought, like, look, if there's a, an infinite multiverse where features of the universes vary from one universe to the next, then you might think that it's not, return to the metaphor of the dials, you might think it's not just the case that the dials are going to have different settings on all these different universes. You might think that, are going to be set on different settings. You might think that the dials themselves will actually be different on some different universes. So that, like, even though universes with dials like ours are such that only very, very few of the settings for those dials are life-friendly, there might be other universes with dials where most of the settings for all of their dials are life-friendly. Um, now, here's what is the literal truth underlying that metaphor. The thought is like, well, look, um, all these fine-tuned parameters are assuming a certain background where there are certain fundamental laws about how the universe works. And given that fundamental, the most fundamental laws, there are certain parameters and they have to be set in certain ways in order for life to be possible. But if you tamper enough with the most fundamental laws of the universe, you might be able to make it the case that um, any of the other dials that need setting uh, are just not going to require fine to, you know, it's not going to be hard for them to be set on a life permitting setting because it might be that most of their settings are life permitting mm. all right so so there might be universes with with totally different dials on them and not yep. just dials that are spun to a different setting okay now suppose that's right um this seems like there's going to be a, another problem for the multiverse proposal think about it like this uh it's easier to get life in universes with dials that have many life-friendly settings yeah. than it or, is to or get... Or fewer overall dials. Or fewer dials, yeah, fewer that sort of thing. more permitting in general, probably. Right. Uh, <clears throat> much easier than it is to get life in universes with dials like ours. And so that seems like maybe it's a reason to expect that, just given that we're observers and we have to find ourselves in an observer-permitting universe, it seems like we'd be more likely to find ourselves in an observer-permitting universe with more life-friendly dials rather than dials like the ones on our universe where they have to be very, very carefully set in order to get life-friendly conditions. Whereas, uh, by contrast, if we're appealing to God as an explanation here, um, it's not terribly hard to think of... A I mean, it doesn't really make much of a difference to God like what kind of dials we have in terms of bringing about life, because even if there are only a few life-permitting settings on certain dials, God can easily just make sure they're on those settings. And it's not terribly hard to think of reasons why God might prefer dials like the ones on our universe, because as some people have pointed out, one thing that does is it gives us evidence that God exists, and maybe God wanted us to have that evidence. It's like an indication that there was some, somebody was up to something, there's a designer or something behind this. So that's another kind of objection there. So what we seem to have from that is good evidence uh, that the way the universe appears to us appears that way because someone designed it to appear that way. Uh, 
why um, should we think that that designer uh, fits any of our other qualifications for being a perfect being? Yeah, so like why can't the designer just be like, you know, some some uh, like finite god that was just playing around in the shop one day and was like, I want to try to make a universe and maybe kind of made a mediocre world or something. You know, this is a sort of idea that David Hume played with uh, in some of his work. Yeah, and so here again, we want to use that strategy that we've been using throughout this series, a strategy which says, um, well, what we've done is we've shown that there's a being with a fairly high level of perfection because this being, a being that designed our world would have to have... Um, some pretty impressive knowledge and power, you know, to fine-tune a universe like this one. And so uh, a question arises, why does this being have all of that perfection? Why does it have all of those powers and all of that knowledge and so forth? And uh, as we explained in our first episode, which you can go back and listen to, uh, you might think, there's some reason to think that the best explanation of why the being has all of those perfections is that it has all perfections. It has these per, uh, these sort of, you know, perfection-inducing properties because it's absolutely perfect. It's got all properties like that. And that's, again, the same move we've made at the end of each argument we've considered so far. Each argument got us to a being that had at least some fairly high degree of perfection, and, and so... Um, not only do we have, you know, one pointer in the direction of there being a perfect being, now we've got at least three. We've got, you know, an argument that, we've got three different arguments that got us as far as a being with, a, you know, certain perfections, and each one of those is at least some reason to think that that being has all perfections. So our case is, is sort of building in strength as we go. We're adding more and more evidence for the existence of an absolutely perfect being.